Welcome to the Fitness Nerdcast. I'm your co-host Ryan Smith with fellow coach Stephanie Holbrook, where we get a chance to geek out on all things fitness and bring it to you. First off, things presented here are our opinions developed with over 40 years of combined experience. We are not medical doctors and any information presented here is purely informational. If you'd be interested in working with us, please email us at fitnessnerdspodcast at gmail.com or hop over to our website and blog at fitnessnerdspodcast.com. While you're online, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fitnessnerdspodcast. Now on with the show. Hello, I'm here with Josh Matthews. He's done some really interesting research on addiction with the use of entheogens. And I asked him to talk about his research and some of the thesis. You haven't finished your thesis. You're just, you just finished the research part of it, right? Yeah, basically. So it's a, it's a, it's a doctoral dissertation and it is a, uh, it's called a grounded theory study. And I'm looking at, um, a number of alternative means by which people can recover from addiction. Um, so yeah, the one that you mentioned uh, were the entheogens. Uh, you know what many people would uh, uh, more commonly know as psychedelic uh, substances. Um, so what I'm looking at, I'm in interviewing people who recovered from their addiction, um, and a big part of it for them, for many of them, was the use of these um, entheogenic psychedelic substances. And so what we're talking about specifically are substances like. Um, Ayahuasca, uh, psilocybe mushrooms, uh, LSD, um, you know, peyote. You know, they all they all they all seem to work in a very similar way for people. What is an entheogen? Like, what does that mean? Okay, well, basically, um, the, entheogen is 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 the word that has come in many circles to replace the term psychedelic. And um, there's three parts of the word: uh, n, which means in. Theo, which means divine or God, and gen, which means to generate. So you put that all together, and it means to something that generates the divine within, and theogen. Um, and it speaks to the spiritual component of these substances, whereas uh, psychedelic, uh, more it, the psychedelic captures the mind-expanding, consciousness-altering property of them. But doesn't really um, capture at all the the spirituality that is pretty commonly experienced with the use of these substances. So, so that's the, that's the basic idea there. Um, and I'm also looking at people who found various meditative uh, practices, yoga, physical fitness. Um, pretty much, I'm looking uh, at people who recovered from their addiction or got free of their addiction through something besides you know 12 step programs and inpatient rehabs. Uh, neither of which work very well. I've been totally unimpressed and my years of working in addiction treatment um, and my years of uh, participating in 12-step programs, um, I've been entirely unimpressed by how well they work for most people. They do work well for some people. Some people love it. You know, they have a certain personality style uh, that seems to really click with the 12-step program idea, um, but the majority uh, do not seem to do well in it. And so the idea is then, okay, well, we're... <laughs> We're obviously uh, missing something here. It would seem fairly obvious, you know, that the way we're treating addiction uh, isn't working well. And we need to do something different. 
Um, that would seem obvious, but it's really remarkable for a for treatment programs that have such a low rate of success. It's remarkable how uh, convinced the providers are that this is the way you do it. So you go to a 12-step program, and essentially, uh, it is made out to seem like if it if, if you don't respond well to it, it's because you're not trying hard enough. It's not it. It's this, it's this odd sort of thing. It'd be kind of like if you were, you know, treating cancer with a type of chemotherapy and it, and it failed for 90% of people, and then you blame the patient. Like, well, you know, well, I, I would say, well, I would say, though, in the treatment of cancer, in, in the treatment of a lot of medical diseases, there's a lot of uh, openness to trying new things. There, right. Develop new forms of treatment is welcome. There's a, there's a whole industry around it. It's expected, I guess you would say, that you develop new treatments uh, to, to for stuff. Whereas in addiction, it's it's kind of like the old guard. I mean, they've been doing the the twelve step program hasn't changed at all since 1930 or whenever it started, uh, 1930 something. And there's just a huge amount of attachment. There's almost sort of like a a, a religiosity within addiction treatment about here's what you need to do. And if you're not doing it this way, you're going to fail. And uh, yeah, I, like I said earlier, I'm just so unimpressed by that because it doesn't work for people. Right. Um, and but there's a, some really exciting stuff. I mean, I think it's good that you're looking into other alternatives because, you know, somebody needs to do the research. Tell me some about the research that you've done um, with other cultures and their study and their use of entheogens because it's completely different than our approach to uh, entheogens or hallucinogens in, in the Western culture because they've been using these substances for thousands of years. Yeah, they sure have. And, and typically in those cultures, it's, it's used in the context of um, some sort of spirituality. It's used... Uh, or the, or a community sort of uh, community experience. You know, you get together and uh, they're considered sacraments, and you take them in a very um, typically a pretty structured environment um, with a certain ritual and ceremony associated with it. And that seems to bring out the best qualities of these substances. That that seems to help facilitate beneficial experiences. Um, psychedelic substances and theogenic substances are complex. Uh, you know, they're not like a simple intoxicant. If you give somebody cocaine, it, it'll make them feel happy and motivated, and it'll always it'll always have that same effect on them. If you give it to a hundred people, with rare exception, it'll do kind of the same thing to everybody. Uh, you give somebody a uh, full dose of mushrooms, though, and they can have any number of experiences, you know, heaven, hell, somewhere in between. Uh, it, it can be anything. And so the idea is that it, there's a lot more um, skill and forethought and intention and respect that needs to go into uh, the use of these substances. Um, and bear in mind, I uh, just to just to be uh, clear, I'm not uh, recommending anybody take these substances at all. I am simply looking at people who use them in the course of their addiction, uh, their, their recovery from addiction. So basically, it's a retrospective look where they're saying, here's what helped me and how it helped me. And what I'm doing is building a theory based on uh, what people have already experienced. I just want to clear that up. Sometimes uh, people misunderstand the research to be, um, you know, recommending or endorsing uh, the use of these substances, and I'm, I'm not doing that. Um, what I am certainly a very big proponent of is that we continue to do uh, research with these substances. 
Um, it, I, I find it uh, appalling, frankly, that they're in the Schedule One class uh, of illegal substances, uh, pretty much all of them. And that means that they are considered to have a high abuse potential and no medical value. And uh, to put that in perspective, uh, heroin, uh, not heroin rather, but um, cocaine, methamphetamine, and morphine are all Schedule Two which is a less restrictive. In other words, those substances are thought to have less of an abuse potential and more medical value than, uh, you know, peyote, uh, ayahuasca, uh, mushrooms. So uh, the fact that they've been in this Schedule 1 uh, for so many years has really stifled research. It's made it just exceedingly difficult for uh, people to do studies on them. And there's been a, a sort of a renaissance uh, you use that use that term in one of our other conversations. There's been a sort of a renaissance in uh, the research, and this renaissance has occurred um, through the tremendous effort that people have put um, into getting these studies approved. It's been very very difficult, um, and my hat and my hat is off to uh, the people that have really uh, pioneered this second wave of research because <clears throat> the results are very very exciting. Uh, they're very promising. I, I know Johns Hopkins did a study uh, like three or four years ago, and they gave uh, something like 60 people who had never taken uh, psychedelics but who also had a spiritual practice or religious belief. They gave them a high dose of psilocybin, uh, the active ingredient in mushrooms, and in, in a comfortable environment with a therapist present to talk to if they needed and something like 75% of people said it was uh, one of the top five most uh, meaningful experiences that they'd ever had on Earth. And then a certain percentage, something like 40%, said it, it had been the single most meaningful experience that they'd ever had on Earth. And months later when they were interviewed, um, most of the people said, yes, that that was a highly beneficial thing. Um, it was a transformative experience. So that's one dose of psilocybin taken in a sort of a clinical environment uh, produced these, you know, fantastic uh, results for people. Uh, doesn't mean people should run out and use psilocybin, but what it does point to is that there's something really exciting going on here. There's something really powerful here. And I'll just say one more thing about that. Um, the way it pertains to addiction, since I'm talking about addiction, uh, is that... It, Research seems to indicate that people need to have a shift, uh, some sort of epiphany, a moment of clarity, um, an awakening, be it spiritual or psychological or anything. People need to have an experience that makes them, that gives them the drive to get free of addiction. You know, something that motivates, inspires, and produces meaning. And it's fascinating because these entheogenic substances for the people that I've interviewed um, produced exactly the sort of psycho-spiritual, psychological uh, state uh, shift that uh, for a long time people have known is necessary. So I think it's really fascinating. It's counterintuitive uh, that you would, uh, you know, benefit from an addiction, uh, you know, getting free of addiction by taking another substance. seems very counterintuitive, um, but that's where, uh, that's, that seems to be the reality. Well, and what we were talking about before, people have a lot of addictions they don't necessarily have to be addicted to a drug. We were talking about the addiction to video games. There's addiction to drama. I mean, the mm. number of... I mean, why, how would you define an addiction? <clears throat> well, that's a really good question. 
Um, that's that's actually one of the the theories that I'm I'm building in my study, and um, you know I I haven't done that yet, so I don't want to uh, I don't want to churn out a half cooked idea here because um, uh, because that wouldn't be that that just wouldn't be good on my part to do so. But what I can I can shed light on an interesting idea. Uh, we all know that addiction is something that really takes hold of people. It produces a lot of negativity um, comes to dominate their life, and uh, you know a lot of times there's characterological changes. You know where they become less honest, more selfish, like all this kind of stuff in the in the course of their addiction. Um, but one of the pieces that I'm sort of uh, building in my in my theory is that addiction is also potentially for people uh, a, a tremendous catalyst for change and growth. Uh, you can think of it like relativity. Um, you know, to know light, you have to you have to know dark. To to know pleasure, you have to know pain. So what we're getting a lot of in my study is people are saying, "Look, you know, my addiction, the whole process of it, helped me become who I am today. Without it, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't be that person." So it's it's an interesting phenomenon. It's it's almost like a it's almost like a, a beneficial thing in disguise for the people that have experienced it. It's helped them really vault uh, ahead in their personal development beyond where they may have otherwise. And again, this isn't to say that uh, addiction is a good thing for people to go through necessarily. It's for certain people that was the, that's their path, and that's it seemed so, really helped the them. thing that really drove them. It put them in a place where they needed to make changes to improve. According to yeah, you, basically, yeah. It really made them have to, to, to come face-to-face -face with who they are, what they're about as a human being, what they're doing with their life. And, and you know, uh, so what you'll see is people who've recovered from addiction, and they're very grateful for it. They say, you know what, it, it was one of the things that made me who I am today. So that's a, that's a less common take on addiction, and I am um, expanding on that idea uh, in, the, in, the theory that, in the theory that I'm building. The uh, definition in Wikipedia is addiction is the continued repetition of a behavior despite adverse consequences or a neurological impairment leading to such behavior. Yeah, well, they're big right now. They're really big on that's good. Uh, they're really big on the physiological side of addiction. So one of the things I'm uh, taking aim at here is the disease model of addiction. And the disease model of addiction is really widespread, really prevalent. It is considered... Um, some people think it's crazy to challenge it. It's uh, it's considered gospel in many in many uh, psychiatric circles at this point, um, despite the fact that there are some major holes in that theory and there's some uh, really um, oh really stark differences between certain other diseases and addiction. Um, so yeah, the physiological side of things is is really emphasized at this point. You know that the idea is that you know you become addicted to a substance and it produces these changes in your neural architecture. So you know your you, your neural pathways start to form in new ways that that prioritize drug use. For it's for instance, you, you, somebody who's developed an addiction to heroin, if they see heroin or think about it, it creates this total. Um, this you know heavy physiological reaction, this emotional reaction. They're flooded with memories and cravings, and the reason that's happening is because their brain has rewired itself to prioritize uh, the drug use. There doesn't seem to be any doubt about that. 
But uh, what's really interesting is that everything does that. Right, you can... Our brains are, yeah, are perpetually rewiring themselves on subtle or, or dramatic levels in response to everything we do in our lives. So where do you draw the line between when is it actually a brain disease? Because the same thing happens with gambling or shopping or sex or anything people get an addiction to, video games. Their brain rewires itself to prioritize that. But where do you, where's the cutoff between normal neuroplastic um, reshaping in the brain and uh, a disease? And, and I can find no good answer to that. It's kind of like, well, if you meet these criteria, we're calling it a, a brain disease. Uh, but that's, um, it's, it's very vague. It's not satisfactory. So one of the things I'm looking to do is um, reconceptualize addiction you know, acknowledging the physical side of things, the physiological component, um, but also defining it in a way that's more precise. You know, if it is a disease, and, and maybe a disease is the best way to think about it, we need to do a better uh, job of defining exactly what it is and who has it. Have you done that'll, any that'll research on the addiction treatment centers uh, for Ibogaine? Because a lot of people talk about, people are afraid to get off of their substance that they're addicted to because of the withdrawal. And um, from what I've read about Ibogaine, it seems like people don't have the withdrawal symptoms, even though they are going through, you know, 48 hours of feeling absolutely miserable. Have you done any research on that? Yeah, uh-huh. Well... You know, I've got a couple people in my study for whom Ibogaine has been really um, instrumental in their path. And uh, a couple things as they say. First is that the whole root, you know, the, the root prepared as, you know, done in the, um, among the Wiki is uh, potentially superior to the Ibogaine, which is the, you know, refined uh, extract of the root. And in terms of the withdrawal side of things, it, it doesn't seem to me from the research I've done that the value of ibogaine is is with the withdrawal, with alleviating withdrawal, because you can you can do a pretty comfy detox nowadays uh, by using like oh you know suboxone and uh, Valium. I mean you can go in and get detox from opiates, and it's gonna it's not gonna be fun. It's gonna be pretty unpleasant, but. Um, it's really not about that. It's really about, it seems to do something on a neuro, uh, neuropharmacological level that reduces craving thereafter in addiction. It seems to do, it's sort of like hitting the reset button on, on your brain chemistry. And then it's also coupled with a, a very intense and very profound uh, psycho-spiritual experience, you know, where people have these experiences of, you know, uh, really seeing all the negative aspects of their addiction and seeing what they could become, basically kind of having a, a psychological confrontation with their addictive pattern. That, that seems to be um, the exciting part of it, that and sort of the, you know, the, the reset button uh, phenomenon. Uh, but it's not, you know, let's, let's be clear, the people I've spoken to about it feel that it is not a panacea, and none of these entheogens are. These are not, um, they're not magic bullets, you know, they're not, it, a lot of the research that's being done in psychiatry in general on uh, entheogenic psychedelic substances is pretty aware of the fact that they, they need to be coupled. First of all, the environment that they're taken in is very important. And then there's also the matter of what to do with, you know, after the experience, you know. Uh, it's easy to... Uh, feel connected and feel very spiritual and have a lot of clarity within 
you know, an ayahuasca experience for many people. But then how do you integrate that into your life and what else is going on? You know, diet, exercise, relationships. There's, it's, it's a very, um, more and more it seems that, yeah, treating addiction seems to be, uh, you know, best done in a very integrated, holistic fashion. At least from my research, that seems to be the, the direction we're heading. And what these entheogens represent is simply a, a new pharmacological, in terms of the pharmacological piece, the medicine piece of it, uh, they represent uh, a lot of potential. And for the people in my study, they um, have been experienced as uh, pivotal and crucial, but not the only thing. So, And I just want to reiterate again, I'm not uh, recommending anybody use <laughs> psychedelic substances for addiction. Uh, I'm simply reporting on what people in my study have already experienced. Um, and and that, that's something that I can do safely and comfortably uh, within the role of a licensed professional. Um, it's, it's a delicate thing because since these substances are still illegal, um, no therapist recommends them. You know, no, nobody's going to recommend that people do that, especially not their patients. Um, but what we can do is talk to people who've already experienced them and uh, find out how they were helpful. And we can talk about that. Right, and the uh, research has to start somewhere. Speech, right? What's that? I said the research has to start somewhere. You know, you have to start somewhere to get the ball rolling for the research. So if you're, if people are coming to you and saying, "Hey, this really helped me," I think as a as a researcher, it's your job to record that and not just dismiss it because that's not what you were taught in school. Or that's exactly taught, right. That's exactly right. You don't. A good science isn't about making the data fit your uh, expectations and belief systems. It's about you know building um, building theory and the hypotheses around what you actually observe. So what is undeniable at this point is that lots and lots and lots of people are taking uh, psychedelic substances um, in a ceremonial way and having profound life-changing experiences. Um, that is uh, undeniable. Um, there's an abundance of evidence for that. So, uh, yeah, we can uh, we can happily report on that and um, in the spirit of science, try to figure out what's going on here and whether or not um, there's a future for these things. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 so I'm very excited about it. I think it's, uh, I think that it is um, a lot more exciting than treatment as usual. Uh, I think it's a lot more exciting than what we're currently doing. And I think that uh, Bill Wilson, uh, the founder of AA, would probably really enjoy seeing what's going on right now. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Bill Wilson, um, long after he had gotten free of alcohol, uh, he was the person that developed Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, he became quite a uh, a proponent of using LSD. Uh, he was friends with Aldous Huxley, and um, long after he became sober from alcohol, he used LSD uh, quite frequently and said that it was very, very valuable medicine and that it helped him uh, experience the third step. It helped him um, connect. He said it removed the ego barriers that stand that stood between him and connection with cosmic reality. And um, he actually brought it to the board at that time of AA and said, listen, I think we may want to look into using this with alcoholics. Like This could be a valuable adjunct to AA. And he was, uh, he was rebuked pretty stiffly by the, by the board. They were not happy about that. And so he agreed to stop talking about uh, LSD uh, in, in the interest of keeping cohesion 
in the 12-step program. Uh, but I think that that's a um, really powerfully a symbolic story there, isn't it? Weren't there some other studies in regards to LSD and alcohol as well? Because I remember watching, you know, one of the documentaries and they were talking about that. It wasn't just with, uh -huh. with him. I mean, there's uh -huh. been a, there were a ton of studies in the 50s, but they all got... Yeah, they were, um, and they were promising. They were, they were. Uh, I mean, the ones that were completed were very promising. Um, and you know, Bill Wilson's story is anecdotal. That's one person's experience, so that's valuable. But um, they were also, you know, rigorous, you know, double-blind studies that were done with LSD, and they were very promising. Um, typically, given in a high dose to people to produce a, uh, you know, a spiritual awakening type of thing, and. Uh, yeah, it wasn't. That's what's really important to understand about the research on psychedelics is that the research was not halted because the results of the research were were uh, poor. The research was halted because of the concurrent um, uh, social use of psychedelics. So that was the you know the 1960s and the hippies and all that and Timothy Leary and. Um, Ram Dass and you know that whole movement uh, popularized LSD and you know that freaked a lot of people out and it doesn't take doesn't take too many people jumping out of a window or whatever those you know the, the rare adverse effects it only takes a couple of those to get uh, the attention of the authorities and the mainstream world and so research was halted because uh, sort of a knee jerk reaction by the government in response to the popular use of psychedelics. I think, I think that's very, very important to understand. Uh, it's a pity, though. They, they, in, they put it right in Schedule 1, all of them. They threw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, and I think that, yes, like, exactly. like you said, that it's so important, that the context in which it's used. And also, um, you know, like we had talked about before, the Native cultures, the indigenous people who use these entheogens, they are using them in the context of their grandmother, the shaman, their their the grandparents, the parents, and the children are all in the same experience, and everybody in their village is experiencing it. So it's it's not like they're sneaking behind the school and taking a drug with no context associated with it. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you look at the typically the horror stories that you know, which have been rare. I mean, if you wanna if you wanna talk about dangerous substances. Um, I challenge anybody to uh, demonstrate how uh, entheogens are more dangerous than alcohol, which is, you know, sold on every corner and produces thousands and thousands of deaths and, you know, battered women and unwanted pregnancies and liver disease and a whole nine yards. So, uh, you know, in the, in the bigger picture, you know, um, entheogens have, have a very low rate of serious adverse um, effects. But, um, but yeah, the ones when adverse effects do happen, they typically are in the context of people taking them and going to clubs, or it's some 16-year-old that did way too much, and they didn't, you know, they didn't research it properly, and they weren't in the right environment. So um, absolutely, you know, these um, these substances can produce, you know, very frightening at the very least, frightening um, and scary, you know, negative type outcomes for people. Um, and in the cultures, like you're saying, where they were traditionally used, um, people understood that and created a, you know, an environment that was favorable, ceremony, ritual, somebody guiding it, um, you know, intentionality. I mean, having a sense of purpose and intention and respect for why you're using it, um, 
versus just people wanting to party. So, yeah, you look at those cultures, um, we may have a lot to learn from them um, as we move forward um, in our own in our own uh, psychiatric use of these things because that's uh, that's coming. Uh, if you look at the research, psychiatric research, they're um, starting to use these substances for all kinds of things in research studies, not in clinical practice. But there's a whole new wave of research with the end of life um, research. That I know there's a psilocybin study with people who had. Um, terminal illness to help them deal with dying and they've had really positive results. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh -huh. I, 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 pretty much every study that I've read that had to do with giving people psilocybin um, was very was very promising. It seems like it's uh, there's a lot of potential there and it's um, great that we're allowed to do research again. It's not easy but um, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. Cool. Well, we're about um, out of time. Thank you, Josh, so much for putting up with my technical difficulties. I really <laughs> no worries. That. And uh, where can somebody find you if they were looking for counseling? Or I know you you do some Skype counseling. You work at a facility. Give us the rundown if someone wanted to get in touch with you. Well, the well, best way to do that would uh, be to go to my website, which is uh, www dot optimal lives dot com that's uh all one word optimal and then lives so there's two l's there optimal lives dot com and um yeah i you know i um live in southern california i have um office i have office in uh, beverly hills and in long beach and um uh, do have openings if if uh, somebody's seeking psychotherapy on the website too um it's basically my psychotherapy website, but there is a page on there that discusses my research um, in, in a sort of an overview sort of way. So uh, if anybody is interested to learn more about the research, they're welcome to uh, contact me through the site. And um, yeah, that, that, that would be uh, that would be very interesting. I'm happy to talk about it. Thank you.